Today we're continuing our series entitled Every Nation, Every Tribe, Every People, looking at God's vision for diversity. The series title is based on words from Revelation chapter 7, which described the Apostle John's vision. I last week said the Apostle Paul. Did you notice that accidentally? His vision of heaven, where there's a great multitude from every nation, every tribe, people, and language. And it's a beautiful picture of unity and colourful diversity. And yet we're very aware, aren't we, that this unity in diversity is not the world we live in. As we know, statistics never paint the full story, but here are a few that give a sense of our current context in the UK. A black person is four times more likely to be detained under the Mental Health Act than a white person. A black person is nine times more likely to be stopped and searched than a white person. Asian and mixed heritage people are stopped and searched more than twice as frequently as white people. 17% of Asian and 15% of black households are on what is known as persistent low incomes compared to just 9% of white households. Around a third of both the Pakistani and Bangladeshi populations live in the most deprived neighbourhoods in England. Black people make up 14% of the population in the United Kingdom, but just 8% of the workforce and 28% of the homeless population. These are not just numbers. Behind these statistics lie individuals and families who are disadvantaged, their race being a key factor. Some of you here today may well be able to relate to these examples. I don't know how you feel when you hear them, but this grieves me. And it leaves me asking the question, why is the world this way? And what can we do about it? And these are questions that I want to explore today. So last week I said that all of us, whether we are black, white, brown, if we're part of God's church, we are part of the solution. To help us think about what we might, how we might do that, I just want to spend some time framing where we are now, 2021, within the big storyline depicted in the Bible. I'm going to use some language that my friend Pete Hughes uses to describe the, the narrative, really, of the whole Bible. It begins with creation, decreation, and recreation. So in this timeline, God creates something beautiful, something perfect. Think Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then it becomes broken. It becomes distorted or decreated by human sin and rebellion and indeed Satan's influence. And, but God intervenes in the person of Jesus. He doesn't simply rewind back to the beginning. He works with the broken pieces and he reconciles, he heals, he restores and makes a recreation, like the picture we just see in Revelation 7, where God's people of every nation, tribe, people and language will dwell in unity with him forever. So where might we put 2021 on this diagram? Well, I'll show you in a minute. But in my own journey of growing in awareness of uh, racial injustice, I find myself repeatedly hearing a common reflection that there are days when it feels like things are improving. We're on the way up. But then there are days when it feels like despite all the media attention and the gestures and the inquiries and the committees and the reports and policies, real progress remains out of reach. And these reflections might be characterised in an expression that Dan used in the conversation we showed on a Sunday in June last year, 
the feeling is underlying frustration with tentative hope. We exist at a particular point in the story where although we have yet to see the promise of diversity and unity described in Revelation 7, we live after the turning point in history. That red point indicating 2021 is somewhere on the right-hand side of the diagram. We don't know how far right it is because we don't know the timing of the Lord's return. The kingdom of God has broken in through the ministry of Jesus and God is at work in the midst of racial and ethnic division bringing about recreation with its reconciliation and restoration. And he is inviting his church to partner with him in that. I share this because in order for us as a church to pursue God's vision for diversity, it's helpful for us to understand where we fit in at this point in history. From there, we can look back along this timeline and understand why things are the way they are, but also look forward to see what we are called to and longing for. Last week, I began to talk about some of the historical context of racial injustice and inequality, which helps us understand the origins of some of the issues that we experience today. But they don't explain why racial tension and prejudice are persistent global and historical issues. What caused the downward slide from creation to decreation? At the start of the Bible, in Genesis, we see a number of pictures of the unity of humanity. Genesis 1 verse 27, it says this, that God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Move on to chapter 10 in Genesis, and we find there what is described as the table of nations. It's essentially a list of all the descendants of Noah, his family, intended to be a portrayal of the entire then known world. In that chapter, there are 70 names, the number used to represent complete totality, emphasizing that every tribe and nation with their own cultures, their own lands, their own languages, and in many cases, their own idols and gods were actually part of one humanity created by God. The point, Kate Coleman puts it this way, the Bible only speaks of one humanity, It starts not with our difference, but with our oneness as being made in the image of God. And then the following chapter, Genesis 11, starts by describing a united and undivided people. So this is verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. However, the story that follows, the story of the Tower of Babel, depicts this humanity becoming fractured with ethnic division. The people decide to build a tower that reaches to the heavens and this displeased is God. He's displeased by this and he intervenes in verse seven. It says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building this city. Why did God disapprove of this project? Well, the answer lies in the motives of the people. So here in verse four, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Here we catch a glimpse of the mindset that's prevalent in our culture today. Make a name for yourself. Find, define and build your identity and then express it to the world. It sounds progressive. But in order to make a name for themselves, 
in order to, to define and establish their identity, they were effectively discarding the identity that God had first given them. And it continues there, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They were attempting to, in this language, reach the heavens and become invulnerable, to become invincible like God, but independent from God. But it backfires. And rather than uniting humanity, the people become divided and scattered. And there's a breakdown of relational unity as they can no longer understand one another. To us, this is an unusual story, but as with other Genesis stories, it's an example of an ancient genre of writing. Uh, And with a bit of effort to contextualize it, we can begin to see the meaning and the truth that God has woven into it. It's an ancient story about a timeless heart condition, individualism, pride, and self-preservation. If the Adam and Eve story shows us the disastrous consequences when these things fill the heart of a couple of humans, then here we begin to see the havoc it can wreak when it exists throughout a whole people group. This is part of this downward spiral from creation to decreation. Whenever a people in history have bought into this idea that they, as a people group, tribe, race, or nation, are somehow superior to others, they've actually bought into an evil lie, often with terrible consequences. It led to the genocide of millions of Jews by the Nazis in the Holocaust. It led to slave traders dehumanizing African people in the transatlantic slave trade. The horrific selling and raping and branding and lynching of people because they were black. It led to a prideful and abusive sense of superiority that characterized colonial Britain. A book celebrating the prosperity of the British Empire published in 1901 presented an image of a schoolhouse for Aboriginal children in Australia. You probably can't make it out, but the caption there is, the lowest step on the ladder of knowledge. It describes the Aboriginal people as of low intellectual capacity before asserting, but the British schoolmaster has come to rescue with his ABC the key which unlocks the treasury of knowledge. Now today we balk at that rather patronizing, that superior language. We live in a world where modern science has helped to reinforce the biblical truth that there is no hierarchy between people of different races. But it is still evident that some races are advantaged over others. For instance, a friend of mine who leads a church in London with many members uh, of many races, actually, but many of African heritage, described to me how people in his church have reported that if they have an obviously African name and they're seeking to find work, that their friends say, good luck, good luck getting a job with that. Good luck getting a job. Sadly, over the last several decades, UK studies conducted around employment and university applications have repeatedly revealed ethnic bias in the processing of these applications. Although we're no longer seeing the atrocities associated with the transatlantic slave trade, we still see the evil of racism in subtle and less subtle ways. It's there when a person is taken less seriously at work because they have an accent. It's there when a black senior nurse is assumed to be the cleaner. 
It's there on a building site when the Eastern European plumber is blamed for the delay. It was there when three black football players, having helped England reach their first major final in decades, missed penalties and received a tirade of racial abuse. I spoke to some black friends that week who said, as soon as the penalties didn't go in, we knew there would be a backlash of racial abuse. Stories like these are saddening and they remind us that it's no good saying racism isn't really a thing anymore. We are not yet at the end of the timeline. We have a long way to go. It can be hard to see how we can really bring any meaningful change. Part of the challenge is that the world is trying to solve the problem solely through human solutions, through political strategy, racial integration, schemes, inclusion policies, campaigns, and laws. But many of these things, you know, they're good, they're helpful, but history testifies to the reality that human division cannot be fully resolved. Peace and unity will not be fully realized apart from God. The change that's needed is a change of heart. And this ultimately cannot be achieved by laws or policies. The Bible story gives us the one and only solution to the relational breakdown between us and God and between us and one another caused by human sin, caused by rebellion. And that solution is found in the person of Jesus Christ. When all hope was lost at the pit of the decreation curve, the only one capable of bringing about recreation, Jesus, intervened. In Ephesians 2, verse 13. Why is the verse not where it was earlier today? (laughs) I know why, because I've just pulled the wrong ribbon. This is Acts 2, so I'll go to the other one, which will take me to Ephesians 2. Okay. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one humanity out of the two, thus making peace. The two referred to here, as I mentioned last week, are the two significant ethnic categories of Jews and non-Jews. Gentiles who had been divided but were now united in Christ within the church. The life of Jesus and his victory on the cross represents the turning point in history. When the ancient cyclical pattern of interracial tension and injustice was broken, when the walls that separate not just us from him but also us from each other were broken down by the most powerful thing in the universe, the blood of Christ. In a world of interracial strife and tension, it says of Jesus, he himself is our peace. I heard Katia Adams recently talking about this passage in Ephesians. She said, in the same way the cross paid the penalty for sin, it paved the way for beautiful unity and diversity. I think in the church there's an error in our thinking that we need to come up with a theological solution to the problem of racial division that hasn't been seen before. It has been seen before. It's been seen on the cross. With the death of Jesus, the power of division was broken. With the resurrection of Jesus, 
recreation begins. And we see it start to spread throughout the whole world on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on Jesus' disciples. So now let's go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Here we see the work, the beginning of the work of recreation. There's uh, a wonderful, and many Bible scholars believe, intentional symmetry between the story of Babel, when human pride and self-centeredness brought about division, and then the day of Pentecost, when God intervened to unite every tribe and nation together. After Babel, people were separated by their ethnic and linguistic differences. After Pentecost, people were united despite their ethnic and linguistic differences. Unity in diversity there on day one of church history. At the start of the day of Pentecost, we have a small group of Jewish Jesus followers. By the end of that day, there are over 3,000 believers and crucially, they were visiting and then they returned to all the then known parts of the world. It was an explosion into every nation, every tribe, every people and every language. God has a plan to heal the fractures and divisions between peoples around the world. And what is he going to use to accomplish this great work of recreation? That's right, us, the church. In Acts 13, we see a description of one of the first churches in Antioch, in Turkey. The leadership team was made up of Greek and Hebrew Jews, Gentiles from Cyprus and Turkey and North and Sub-Saharan Africa. Josh Kay will mention more about the diversity of the New Testament church in two weeks' time. This was revolutionary. Revolutionary. If you want evidence that the New Testament church changed the world, if you want proof that this was God, then we're it. You know, here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, inviting the same Holy Spirit to come and fill us in a language that didn't even exist back then. We're the product of an initially tiny Jewish sect that went global and turned the world upside down, crossing seas, boundaries and cultures, uniting the world around the person of Jesus Christ, the one who paid the ultimate price on the cross to tear down any walls between us. And now it's our turn. In his parting words to his disciples, in the preceding chapter there, we see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This wasn't just an instruction to take the gospel to the known world. And I hadn't realized this until the last week or so. It was an instruction to cross racial and cultural boundaries as part of this endeavor. So interestingly, Jesus specifically mentions Samaria. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They didn't mix with them. They didn't even talk with them. Samaria was between Jerusalem and then 
uh, the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth and so on up the top. But most Jews would actually cross the Jordan, go right the way around the longer route so that they wouldn't have to even touch the land of Samaria and certainly have any contact whatsoever with Samaritans. They were divided from each other, the Jews and the Samaritans, in every way. You may recall the shocking story recorded in John chapter 4. Jesus had personally crossed the divide, dividing, break, uh, uh, crossed the divide, breaking racial, ethnic, religious, and social barriers to speak to the woman, the Samaritan woman, at the well. And now he's instructing his disciples to do likewise. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, sharing the gospel with people you are absolutely currently divided from in Samaria. In his book, Crossing the Divide, Owen Hilton writes this, if Jesus can command his first disciples to take the gospel across hostile divides, he can command us to reach across the divide. Where there are harmful divisions, we're to build bridges. We, the church, are called to be a place where the world sees unity and diversity lived out in a way that is inspiring, attractive, and transformational. Pete Hughes often asks the question, what story are you choosing to live in? Because the story you live in is the story you live out. Every nation, every tribe, every people is the story we're part of, and it's the vision that we are called to live out. But as you know, it's not finished yet. There's a work to be done in, in this church, in this city, and of course, way beyond. So how do we do this? Well, it's important to stress it's not a quick journey. We are here. We don't live in the full reality of the future promise. And yet we live at a point in the story where through the person of Jesus, something has changed. The work of recreation has begun, but it's yet to arrive in its fullness. To put this in the language from our Kingdom of God series we did in the summer, we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. We live in a world where we experience sin in all its forms, including racial and ethnic prejudice and injustice, both in the world around us and even in our own lives. And it will therefore be a costly journey. Jesus made a sacrifice to cross the divide. And we also need to embrace the cost that may be necessary for us to do the same. This journey may involve dealing with some of the heart problems that cause division, such as individualism, pride, and preservation. Acknowledging that our hearts need to change and may be resistant to that. It may require us to search ourselves for why we're resistant, for unconscious bias or wounds that need to be healed. Unforgiveness we need to let go of. Reconciliation we need to seek. And this will require time and grace and conscious effort, cooperation with each other, and above all, reliance on God. As I did last week, I encourage all of us to approach this subject with, with openness and with grace, to be mindful that in this room there will be very different experiences and views, but to remember that we're on this journey together as a church family. In terms of practical steps, as I finish, I would suggest watching last week's talk. If you haven't, if you missed that, it's very important. This one has been building on it. And make sure that you hear Josh Kay's talk in two weeks' time. Engage in the conversations like the small group uh, 
small groups we'll be having next month as they go through some material. And check out the personal reflection resources which you can access at trentb.org forward slash every nation. And as I said before, take the initiative to reach out to someone who isn't from the same background as you. Perhaps invite someone to have a coffee or invite someone for a meal. And before I close, I'd just like to share some thoughts on this, this relational step of reaching across racial, ethnic, and cultural boundaries with just advice I've gleaned from various conversations and, and sources. The subject can feel overwhelming. It can be sometimes difficult to know where to start. Well, prayer is always a good place. Ask God to guide you towards opportunities to develop relationships with people who don't share your racial or ethnic heritage. As you invite someone for coffee or dinner, remember this, this is not a project. This is not about white people doing something to people from other backgrounds, nor vice versa. It's about developing relationships, enjoying the richness of different cultures. Let's value people, take a genuine interest in others' lives. And with many of the people you connect with, it may just be a, sim a single occasion. But there may be some people with whom you want to take the friendship a little further. This can take time. It's amazing how much you can click over one meal, but particularly where there are language or significant cultural differences or where the subject can be painful or difficult, it may take time to build trust and to build that deeper connection. Let's be willing to be real, to talk about the struggles that we experience, not just in this conversation, but in our wider lives. I'd encourage you to be willing to offer and receive help and hospitality from one another. As part of the openness, part of the openness means that you'll need to learn to relax. We all need to learn to relax. As a white man, I'm often wary about using the wrong language in conversations about race. Even in preparing this sermon, I've been worried about the phrases I use. I've attempted to find the appropriate language, but discovered that, you know, there isn't a definitive guide. Some of my black friends use phrases that some of my other black friends absolutely don't like. The key is to, to ask, to be gracious. When people use the wrong language, I've been significantly helped in conversations with people who have lovingly corrected me when I've got it wrong. When we're asking a question about someone's culture or their history, we, we need to be careful. Here's a little thing. For example, if you're opening question as you meet somebody's, where are you from? Okay, a white person with a black person, let's say, where are you from? It could be interpreted as you seeing that person in some way is not from here. That's the implication, as in some way foreign. And without meaning to, you are perhaps pushing them away from this being their home. They may have a different skin colour and, and cultural heritage to you, but their family may have indeed lived in Nottingham for multiple generations. So just be careful of that, where are you from, coming too early in a conversation. A conversation around race may be much more painful also for the person that you are speaking to than it is for you. So we need to be sensitive and we'll all need to have grace for one another. I was reminded just preparing this as we journey together, Paul's letter to the Colossians, a lovely little text in here. He says this, I'm just going to begin it in verse 12. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, 
and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So what I'm really asking you to do is bear with each other. As we go on this journey, we we will make mistakes. I know I have. We may say the wrong thing. We might use words or phrases that aren't ideal. We're trying to get it right. And when we get it wrong, let's have a heart posture of forgiveness. We'll need to be patient with each other as we learn together. And this whole journey is about loving one another. In all the richness of our difference, we are bound together through, in love through Jesus. Jesus said, they'll know your Christians by what? By your love, one for another. And that love is what allows us to venture into these sometimes difficult and sensitive conversations. It is the oil that lubricates the moving parts, reducing friction, and makes really this journey together possible. That love is what binds us together. It is what unites us as Christ's beautiful and diverse church.